Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. You'll remain standing and take your Bibles, turn to the book of James. The book of James, chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we will be uh, looking at verses 2 through 4 this morning, but I'll be reading verses 1 through 4. So James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, beginning now in verse 1, if you'll follow along. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. Last week in verse 1, we learned the writer of this epistle is James, our Lord's half-brother, And you'll remember that during Jesus' earthly life and ministry, James and uh, his other brothers didn't believe in Jesus. But Jesus personally appeared to James following his resurrection, and James came to believe his older brother was the Messiah, and he put his faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. James then went on to become a part of the church in Jerusalem and, and very quickly rose to a place of prominence. He was the, in in contemporary terms, he was the senior pastor and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was a pillar of the church, according to Paul. He was very well known and, and greatly respected throughout the early church. James was a godly, deeply spiritual man who was faithful and fiercely passionate, yet he was also a very humble man who saw himself simply as a slave, a slave of God and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. James understood that he existed solely for the purpose of carrying out the desires of another, God himself. James remained in Jerusalem, leading and ministering in the church until his genuine, persevering faith eventually brought about his death in 62 AD. But sometime between 45 to 49 AD, Word got back to James of the difficulties his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ living outside of Israel were experiencing. And in response to the persecution against the church in in Jerusalem, these Jewish believers were those who had fled to Judea and Samaria and then to Jewish communities around the Mediterranean. In fact, Acts 11 says they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And tragically, having left the security of home, these Jewish believers were not taken in by their Jewish countrymen because they were Christians. 
Instead, they were rejected and persecuted. They were denied work, refused help. They, they were left in the dire straits of poverty. They were outcast and, and were refused protection by the Jewish community. Consequently, they were also exploited by the Gentiles. They were homeless and disenfranchised. They were robbed of their possessions. They were hauled into court, subjected to the Gentile elite. They had, had less standing than slaves. In other words, they were experiencing severe fiery trials and suffering that included rejection, persecution, uh, severe poverty, adversity, affliction from without, and, and conflicts within. And it is to these scattered Jewish believers, most of whom uh, may have been in the church at Jerusalem under James' pastoral care at one time, it is to these former church members that Pastor James writes. And his first word, if you'll remember from last week, his first word to his suffering readers in verse 1 is greetings. And you'll remember that word means to rejoice or be rejoicing or be glad. And so he began on a note of joy, encouraging his readers to look up, just as Jesus did when he said to his disciples in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And with that simple word of greeting, James begins his epistle first by addressing the issue of the Christian and trials. And his teaching should be understood against the backdrop of some false assumptions held by many Jews in that day, including the disciples of Jesus. Based upon God's covenant promises with Israel, individual Jews expected God to bless them materially in response to godly living. And conversely, they believed that those who experienced trials and suffering those who experienced sickness, disease, tragedy, poverty, adversity, and such did so because God was punishing them for sin, for some evil that they had done. And so in short, they expected God to bless them for doing good and to punish others for their sin. In the book of Job, we see that Job's friends had this mindset. Job's friends persisted in, in trying to force him to confess that his suffering was a result of some sin that he had committed, and, and, the, and they insisted that if he would just repent of his sin, then God would once again begin to bless him. But of course, we know that Job was being tested by severe trials because of his godliness and not because of sin. Asaph, the author of Psalm 73, had the same assumptions about prosperity and poverty, and, and he was frustrated and angry with God because the wicked seemed to prosper while the ungodly did not. Even the disciples bought into this thinking. In John chapter 9, when they saw the man who was born blind, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The Jewish believers James was writing to uh, may have and probably did have this same mindset when it came to the severe trials they were experiencing. And they may have been very surprised at what was going on. In fact, they may have been shocked, wondering, you know, why is this happening? 
You know, we're, we're, we're seeking to live godly lives, and yet here we are. We're, we're experiencing great trials and suffering. And this wasn't only a problem for Jewish believers in that day. Gentile believers struggle with this issue as well. Writing to suffering believers who were for the most part Gentiles, Peter said in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. You know, Peter exhorted believers not to be surprised when they experience fiery trials. And, and that's right. And as believers, we should not be surprised when we encounter trials of of any kind as though something strange is happening to us. But we do. And the fact of the matter is, the attitude of many, if not most Christians in America today, is to look on trials and suffering as strange and and abnormal. And so we're surprised and and we're astonished. Why? Because we think God's children should be kept from these things. And one reason many professed Christians believe that is because of the shallow, man-centered gospel so prevalent in modern-day American Christianity. I mean, you could call it the gospel of comfort. You know, the gospel of the American dream, which places God at our disposal, answering to our every beck and call. And so God is is no more than a heavenly vending machine dispensing happiness and, and pleasure in whatever form we desire and demand. You know, he's the God who helps us fulfill the American dream, the God who dispenses the good life. And Jesus is seen as a a buffer against anything that is negative, including suffering of any kind, which must be avoided at all costs, even if that means compromising the truth. And if suffering and persecution can't be avoided, then they need to be dealt with just as quickly as possible so that the the normal life, the, the comfortable life, can return as soon as possible. That is a false gospel. Because biblical Christianity does not promise a life without trial, suffering, difficulty, and hardship. Rather, it promises just the opposite. Everyone who lives in this world will experience some degree of trouble. I mean, that is the consequence of the fall, the natural result of sinful human nature, and of a world and a society that is absolutely corrupted by sin. We're going to experience trial and trouble in this life. One of Job's friends, Eliphaz, said, But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job said, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. David said in Psalm 22, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, he said, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way. I mean, Paul, in Acts 14, Paul was strengthening the souls of of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. To the Philippians, Paul said, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He wrote to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus 
will be persecuted. You see, loved ones, we have absolutely no right to expect better treatment from the world than our Lord received. And as Christians, we should not be shocked at all that life is difficult and full of trials. Rather, we should understand that trials and suffering come with the Christian faith. It isn't strange. Rather, it's part and parcel of the Christian life. It's the normal Christian experience. I mean, the world is a place of constant trial, constant testing, where peace is rare, almost abnormal, and trials are common. As one man said, from our childhood home to the retirement home, trials are constant. (laughs) And how we understand trials and how we respond to them has everything to do with our faith. And James wants the church to live out its faith in the crucible of life in all its trials. And he's going to give us the correct perspective on the Christian's attitude toward trials. And he begins in verse 2 with the proper response to trials. And you'll notice as you look at verse 2 that James addresses his readers as my brothers. The Greek word translated there, my brothers, refers to siblings in a family. And in the New Testament, depending upon the context, It may refer either to men or to both men and women who are siblings or brothers and sisters in God's family, the church. That is its meaning here. And by calling them my brothers, James is adding a special note of of personal identification and, and love and concern. I mean, it expresses James' personal feelings toward his readers. But as their brother, he is concerned about them. They're his brothers and sisters in Christ. They're fellow members with him in the family of God. They shared in a relationship brought about by living faith in a common Savior. My brothers, he says. So James, what James has to say applies only to born-again believers, born-again Christians. And what does he say? We'll look at verse 2. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. (laughs) This is one of those verses many people kind of wish wasn't in the Bible, right? (laughs) Yet this uh, this is one of the most important passages for mature, authentic Christian living. Count it all joy, he says, when you meet various trials. Well, first of all, when we talk about trials, what are we talking about? You know, what what does the Bible mean by trials? Well, the Greek word that is translated here as trials can also be translated as temptation. In fact, it is translated tempted and tempt in verses 13 and 14 of James chapter 1. Sometimes we face trials on the outside. Sometimes we face temptations On the inside, the reference here in verse 2 is to outward circumstances or external trials. And the root meaning of the word trial is to try or prove or to put someone or something to the test with the purpose of discovering that person's nature or that thing's quality. So we could define a trial this way. A trial is a, a difficult situation 
a pressure situation, trouble, or something brought upon our lives that breaks the pattern of peace, comfort, joy, and happiness, bringing about a reaction through which the character or commitment of the believer is demonstrated. Let me read that again. We could define a trial in this way. A trial is a difficult situation, a pressure situation, trouble, or something brought upon our lives that breaks the pattern of peace, comfort, joy, and happiness, bringing about a reaction through which the character or commitment of the believer is demonstrated. And our response to these pressure situations demonstrates the genuineness of our faith and also the quality of our faith. So trials reveal true faith and they, they purify and they strengthen that faith. In fact, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter described the various trials believers face as a means of purifying their faith in the same way that fire purifies metals. He expresses the same thought again in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. But what we as believers must remember is that these trials do not just randomly happen. They're not just random acts of fate. And our trials and sufferings are not accidental. Nor do they interfere with God's purpose for our lives. Rather, They are part of God's purpose. He uses them in our lives. Trials are designed by God to prove the genuineness of the believer's faith and to purify and to strengthen their faith. And James tells us, look back at the verse, that we will meet various trials. And the word translated here as meet literally means falling into. That's what it literally means, a falling into into. It speaks of coming into a circumstance which surrounds a person unexpectedly and unavoidably. For example, the story of the Good Samaritan. It is used of the man who fell among robbers. In other words, he fell into a situation unexpectedly, unavoidably, and he was suddenly surrounded by thieves. This word is also used in the book of Acts where it's translated striking. And there it speaks of Paul's ship striking a reef, a situation which was unavoidable. So all this indicates to us that James is dealing with falling into a situation of outward trials. And his point is that trials come upon us unexpectedly. We can't predict how or when they may come. They may come at any time and in countless ways. And so we need to be prepared at all times because trials are inevitable. Trials are inevitable. And I say that because if you'll notice, James does not say, count it all joy if you meet various trials. No, what does he say? He uses the word when. When you meet various trials. You see, trials are not an elective course in the school of faith. It's a required course. And James wants us to know that trials are inevitable in this life. I mean, like death itself, trials are inescapable and unavoidable. And there are a few things certain in this world, but trials, troubles, hardships, suffering, challenges to faith, these things will come. 
And they're not intended to give God an opportunity to see how we're doing, but rather to let us see how far we have come or how far we have failed to come. I mean, trials are inevitable, and they're also various in nature. Notice that James says we will meet trials of various kinds. Various kinds. The word various literally means variegated or many-colored, like the many colors in the spectrum. And it came to be used figuratively of things that are diverse or varied. And it stresses the great variety or diversity of the trials that come upon believers. And by the way, just as uh, an aside, just a word of encouragement here, Peter uses this same word in 1 Peter 4.10 to describe the varied grace of God. And that's a beautiful thought. So even though trials are multicolored, are varied, God's grace is also multicolored and varied. And so it's as if there's, there's no color of trial that God cannot match with the color of grace. In other words, there, there is grace to match every trial. God's grace is sufficient for every human trial. But James' point is that trials come in different ways, in different sizes, shapes, and colors. There, there's no end to the variety of trials that we as believers may experience. They just come in, in many forms. They include both the difficulties that are common to all people, as well as the specific trials Christian face, Christians face as a direct result of their faith. A trial can come in the form of lacking provision, protection, you know, loss of business, Loss of reputation or home, desertion by parents or children or a spouse or friends. A trial may come in the form of verbal or physical persecution because of one's faith. Things like being slandered, mocked, hated, assaulted, arrested, even killed. A trial can be the suffering experience because of a physical affliction, you know, disease. A trial is not only physical suffering, though. Some of the worst suffering is mental and emotional. And watching a loved one waste away with the disease. The mental and emotional suffering we experience as the result of someone else's sin. A trial can include direct attacks from the enemy of our souls. I mean, there's no end to the variety of trials that we as believers may experience. There are small trials, the the difficulties we all go through, yet there are are big, severe trials, terminal illness, permanent disability, adulterous spouse, loss of a loved one. And James doesn't try to list them all. I mean, his point is simply that the trials we encounter will come in, in many shapes, many shades, and in varying degrees. And it's not that every individual Christian will suffer every kind or degree of trouble, but that Christians in general are subject to troubles of every kind from every possible source. But whatever the trial may be, it is our attitude toward it and our response to it that reflect our spiritual condition. And that's what pressure does, right? You put pressure on a sponge, you squeeze it real hard, and what's inside comes out. That's what a trial does. It's pressure brought about to bear upon the believer. Squeezes 
so that what's inside comes out. And what does James say we're to do when we meet trials of various kinds? How are we to respond? Look back at the verse. He says we're to count it all joy. It's like, really? Are you serious, James? Because joy is not the usual response we have to trials and difficulties, is it? Now, don't look at me like you're all spiritual (laughs) and you don't think that. We all know that joy is not the usual response that we have to trials and difficulties. If James had told us to be aggravated, frustrated, you know, ticked off or bitter, well, we could probably have just moved right on by these verses. But joy... Joy is not the natural human response to trouble. I mean, most people count it all joy when they escape trials. But James says to count it all joy in the midst of trials. And the tense of this indicates this is a command. James is not merely suggesting this. He is telling us that this is something Christians must do. And the Greek for all all joy means supreme joy, full joy, pure joy, much joy, joy to the highest. And you read that and you think, what? I mean, is he some kind of, of masochist? Because that sounds totally irrational. That doesn't seem to make any sense at all. In the same breath that he warns his readers that they're going to face trials of various kinds, he says to count it all joy. I mean... That, that seems like the last thing that we should be expected to do, that this whole thing seems absurd. And while we may not write James off altogether, we, we certainly might question whether his advice is at all practical and realistic when we're going through terrible trials. I mean, sure, that, that might work for, for minor irritations that we encounter every day, but But is it realistic advice when we're facing severe trials that come upon us? Yes, it is. How do we know? (laughs) Well, James is writing under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This means that what James says to the church is in reality what his Lord and Master Jesus Christ says to the church. And so we receive it as it is in truth, the very words of God himself to all believers in every age. And God's word is saying to us through James, count it all joy when you meet various trials, or meet trials of various kinds. Now we have to start by understanding what James is not saying. James is not saying that we should feel happy in the midst of the trial. He is not suggesting that we greet every trial and difficulty that comes our way with a big, yes, this is awesome. He doesn't mean that at all. Christians are not to pretend that the sufferings of this life are not real and painful because they are, very much so. Peter told his readers, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Trials are grievous. They're painful. They're not joyous. Because if there was no pain, it would not be a trial. 
James is not commanding us to have a joyful emotion during severe trials, nor is he demanding that his readers must enjoy their trials or that trials are joy. James is not commanding that we be joyful when we learn that our position has been given to someone else or that our neighbor's child has leukemia or that your spouse is adulterous. He is not saying that we are to have joy for the trials themselves. Trials are not happy experiences. They're not joyful or pleasurable in and of themselves. The trials themselves are not called a joy. He says we're to count it all joy when we meet these various trials. Well, what does that mean? The word count means to consider. It means to think. It means to evaluate something based on weighing and comparing of facts. This is a word that addresses how we think. This is a matter of the will, which is important. This is not about feeling. This is not simply about putting on a happy face and then just pretending that that everything is okay and trying to make everyone else around us think that everything is okay. No, this is a deliberate act. This is a conscious decision that we make rather than something we feel. To count it all joy means to respond with a deliberate intelligent evaluation of the situation, not an emotional reaction. It means when we face the trials of life, we evaluate them in the light of what God is doing for us. It's coming to a settled conclusion or a settled conviction after carefully weighing all the factors involved that that although trials are not joyful in and of themselves, We can find joy in the midst of them because they are the means God uses to produce something of great spiritual value in our lives. And so what James is saying is that when trials come, we are to make a conscious, determined commitment to see the trials as a reason for joy because of what God sovereignly accomplishes through them in our lives. And so let me ask you, when trials come, how do you respond? I mean, do you rebel against them? I mean, have an attitude of defiance, get mad at God? You know, I mean, you can live in a a state of denial, playing a mind game to, to keep yourself feeling happy by denying the reality of the trial. You know, you can lose heart or or give up under the continued pressure. You can grumble and and complain and, and whine about your troubles. You can indulge in, in self pity. You know, thinking of no one but yourself, having a little pity party, of trying to get sympathy from others, or you can just talk to everyone, anyone and everyone about your problems. Or, we can view our trials as a cause for joy, telling ourselves that God has allowed this trial to come into my life. He has some good purpose in it for me. I don't know what that purpose is, 
but I know that God will use it to purify and strengthen my faith and to develop my character and to make me more and more like Jesus. And we know this because Paul tells us we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Count it all joy when you face various trials is the command. Say, is this possible? Yes, it is. Paul told the Corinthians, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. In Acts chapter 5, Luke tells us that when the Sanhedrin had called the apostles, they beat them and, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, not in the beating, but in the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Hebrews 12 tells us that our Lord himself, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus looked beyond the trial of trials to the joy that he knew would be his when the trial was over and it had accomplished the glorious work that it was divinely ordained to accomplish. You see, loved ones, trials will either make us bitter or better. And it depends on how we respond to them. And because God commands it, every true believer has the ability to respond properly by the enabling power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is a matter of the will, not a matter of feelings. One commentator wrote, God is trying to produce Christ's likeness in each of his children. This process necessarily involves suffering, frustration, and perplexity. The fruit of the Spirit cannot be produced when all is sunshine. There must be rain and dark clouds. Trials never seem pleasant. They seem very difficult and disagreeable. But afterwards, they yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by them. How often we hear a Christian say after passing through some great crisis, it was not easy to take, but I would not give it up, or I would not give up the experience for anything. We can have joy in the midst of trials because we know they have spiritual value. That's verse 3. Notice what James says in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So James says, you know. Of the two Greek words for knowing, this term means to know by experience. It's the idea of full understanding of something that is beyond the merely factual and that often comes from personal experience. The reason that we as believers should respond with an attitude of joy when faced with various trials is that we know. We know from our own experience, and we know from the Word of God, the trials are a means of testing through which God works to purify, strengthen, and perfect our faith. And this word translated testing, it refers to the process by which silver or gold is refined by fire. I mean, you purify gold by fire. 
You get rid of the alloy and all of the impurities by putting gold in the crucible and then applying great heat to it. And then when the gold is melted in the fire, the impurities float to the top and are, are burned away or removed, and the purified gold remains. And so when the remaining fire, uh, when the refining fire is over, the gold is more valuable, so, and so it is with our faith. I mean, we have faith. As believers, we have faith. We trust God's promises, but there are impurities in our faith. There's sin. Things like selfishness, self-dependence, selfish ambition, envy, unbelief, anger, spiritual pride, stubbornness, lust, sinful motivations, wrong priorities, wrong attitudes. And there are tendencies to love and trust money and position and, and popularity alongside God. And this is dirt. This is dirt mingled with the gold of faith. And these impurities in our faith hinder our fullest experience of the goodness and the greatness of God. And so God refines our faith with the fire of trials so that our faith is more pure. Uh, that is, it, it's more utterly dependent on Him and not on things and other persons for our joy. And one of the best illustrations of how this works comes from the experience of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul described this refining process of God in his distress. He said there, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, where we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So God took away from Paul, you know, just, just safety and security and let him feel uh, an almost overwhelming sense of human abandonment. Not because God didn't love Paul, but because God saw Paul's faith as gold worthy of refining. So one reason trials come is because of the need to purify and strengthen our faith and develop the character of our faith. And the more trials we go through, the more we learn to trust God. Look, it's easy to trust God when everything is going good. It's easy to trust God. When you got money in the bank, nobody's sick, everything's going well, easy to trust God. But when things begin to happen, when dark storm clouds blow into our lives, we begin to wonder, well, where's God? You know, what, what's going on here? And we wonder whether the Christian life is what we thought it was. And, and why do we do that? Because our faith hasn't developed the element of trust. Though we think we have a lot of trust, but reality is we don't have as much as we think we do. And so God deals with us to, to, to a place to trust Him in the dark when we can't see it all. I mean, look at Abraham. He trusted God completely when everything seemed to be against him. And that's the kind of faith God wants to be developed in us too. And we don't start out with faith like that. It's as we go through trials, as God tries us and tests us, that our faith and, and trust develops and grows and, and is strengthened. And then the next time a trial comes along, we're a little more calm because we realize what's going on. 
And it's by going through trials that our trust in God is developed. So trials are a means by which our faith, tested in the fires of suffering and adversity, can be purified of any dross and thereby strengthened. But James tells us, look back at the verse, he tells us that this testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness. And the tense of the word produces indicates this is an ongoing process. So the testing of our faith is continually producing and developing steadfastness in us. And steadfastness refers to the way Christians are to respond to external difficulties. And this word is often used in the New Testament to indicate the quality required by Christians as they face adversity, temptation, and persecution. This word steadfastness has also been translated Perseverance, endurance, fortitude, staying power, heroic endurance, brave endurance, and patience. However, patience is probably not the best translation. Because as one man said, uh, patience sometimes suggests a passive resignation to unpleasant situations. Whereas, he said, steadfastness is not a meek, passive submission to circumstances, but rather a strong, active, challenging response. And so steadfastness is not a passive acceptance of circumstances. Rather, it's a courageous perseverance in the face of suffering and difficulty. It's the picture of the person who bravely remains under a heavy load without collapsing or or without cowardice. You know, it's being resolved to stay there instead of trying to escape, just quietly accepting God's will, trusting Him to enable us to endure and, and just, you know, keeping, you know, just to keep moving forward, to keep serving, to keep obeying, to, to keep doing what's right in the face of, of whatever it is. You know, just to keep on keeping on. And of course, that is only by the grace and strength that God supplies. But it takes effort on our part. One commentator said, it is not a passive attitude of quiet submission or resignation, but rather a brave manliness that confronts the difficulties and contends against them. It's the characteristic of a man who has not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to the faith and godliness by even the greatest trials and suffering. It is that tenacity of spirit which holds up under pressure while awaiting God's time or dismissal of the test, or for his reward. Steadfastness describes the endurance which Christ, with which Christ faced his enemies. James uses the word later in chapter 5, verse 11, to describe Job's continuing faith in God in spite of the most crushing troubles. I mean, steadfastness, it's the Christian who who endures, who, who, who perseveres, who, who doesn't lose heart under heavy trials, who, who doesn't give up. You know, we might call it spiritual toughness. It's a spiritual virtue that grows under trial and trusting it, uh, testing. I mean, steadfastness is like a, a muscle that becomes strong from continually being subjected to resistance from heavy weight. And in the same way, 
Christians develop steadfastness, spiritual strength, and stamina through facing trials. I mean, there's no other way. It increases each time a trial is steadfastly and trustingly endured. As Paul said in Romans 5.3, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. The more trials, the more tests we pass, the tougher spiritually we become. And so our faith is stronger for the next trial. And we know that by God's grace we can endure because we've already been through previous trials. I'm not saying uh, a Christian never wavers under a trial. And there are trials that are so severe that you wonder if you're going to make it through the next five minutes, much less through the day. And in sorrow and through tears, you literally cry out to God, God, help me. Help me. And he hears our cries, and he does, and we don't know how. It's just the grace and mercy of God, but we get through the next five minutes, and we get through the next hour, and we get through the day. And there's no... There's no explanation for it but other than the grace and the mercy of God, His strengthening, enabling, and empowering grace. So I'm not saying that the Christians never waver under a trial. They may. But when it's all said and done, a true believer's faith will survive the trial and will ultimately be strengthened by it. In the Bible, in Hebrews 12 calls us to run with endurance the race that has been set before us. Run with endurance. And obviously the picture there is not a a quick hundred-yard dash, but rather that of a marathon. A marathon lasting throughout our entire life. And this picture fits well with what James is saying here because a Christian must have staying power. Spiritual strength and and toughness. Steadfastness. And this can only be developed in the face of trials and adversity. One man wrote, The only way the Lord can develop this steadfast character in our lives is through trials. Endurance or perseverance cannot be attained by reading a book, listening to a sermon, or even praying a prayer. We must go through the difficulties of life, trust God, and obey Him. And the result will be steadfastness and character. And so knowing this, we can meet trials with joy. Because we know what God will do in us and for us through the trials, and we know that the end result is also going to bring glory to God. I mean, James tells us the trials test our faith, and what comes out of that is steadfastness, but that's not an end in itself. No, because steadfastness then produces maturity. That's verse 4. And there James exhorts us, notice, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word let 
you know, let it, let steadfastness have its full effect. That word let implies submission to God in the trial. And by submitting to God, uh, that does not mean passively enduring it without praying for relief. You know, Paul prayed that God would remove his thorn in the flesh. And he only stopped praying when God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. Being submissive to God in a trial does not necessarily mean that we do not take steps to remedy the problem. I mean, for example, if the trial is the loss of a job, it is right in dependence upon the Lord to seek another job. I mean, if the trial is an illness, it is right not only to pray, but to seek medical help. If the trial is a difficult circumstance, it is not necessarily wrong to to try and change the circumstance, you know, seeking God in prayer as to what he would have us to do. Now, this submission to God is an attitude toward him where we humble ourselves under his mighty hand in reverent obedience and trust. It is not being defiant, questioning God, and, and demanding to know why he has, he, has, he has done this to us or allowed this thing in our lives. It's not ignoring him and and taking matters into our own hands. I mean, apart from prayer and faith, of course. And one of the best examples uh, of this submission is Job, who after God afflicted him said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then again he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. James says we're to let, we're to submit to God so that steadfastness will have its full effect. Literally, let it have its perfect or complete work. That is, let it bring the Christian to the Lord's intended purposes. And what is that? What is the full effect or complete work of steadfastness in the life of the believer? Spiritual maturity. Yes, and it would include Christ-likeness, absolutely. Spiritual maturity. Spiritual steadfastness or toughness produces maturity. You know, if you never uh, face trials, you never face difficulties in the Christian life, you never uh, get put through the fire in that way, don't think that you're going to mature all the way. It's spiritual steadfastness or toughness in the face of trials that produces maturity. When James speaks of it in terms of being perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now this word perfect does not mean, it does not mean, that you can arrive at a state of moral or spiritual perfection or, or sinlessness or perfect maturity in this life. Later in this letter, James clearly acknowledges that we all stumble in many ways. And so it does not imply that you reach a point in this life where where you've arrived, you've attained, and you need no further progress. You are mature. Never happened in this life. Not perfectly. Now this word perfect refers to that which is fully developed, it means mature, referring to spiritual maturity, fulfilled in Christ's likeness, which is the goal of steadfastness and perseverance. The word complete 
carries the idea of being whole, you know, entire. And the two words, perfect and complete, together speak of being fully developed in every part. Not perfectly developed, but fully developed in every part. I mean, it'd be like an adult versus a child. They've got all the parts, but they're not fully developed yet. The two words, perfect and complete, together speak of being fully developed in every part. In other words, it speaks of a fully developed or well-rounded Christian character, which James will later explain in terms of not only hearing the word, but doing the word. If you're only a hearer and not a doer, you're not mature. He'll also speak of it in terms of faith accompanied by works. Talk is cheap. You know, if you profess faith, but there's no evidence of it in your life, you're not mature. You may not even have real faith. So James is speaking of a particular kind of maturity, an all-around maturity that is demonstrated by a likeness to Christ in every part of our character so that we're lacking nothing. You know, in every part of our, our character, Christian virtues are being displayed. The fruit of the Spirit is being manifested in our lives. In other words, the, the end result of trials is an all-around maturity, completeness, and not lacking in anything of spiritual importance and value. And this is really the ultimate purpose for trials in this passage and in the book of James as a whole. God's goal in our lives is spiritual maturity. It's, it's growth in Christ's likeness. Because one day, every single person is going to stand before Almighty God. And as believers, God's goal from now until then is to prepare you and I for that day. But you see, the problem is most people don't think like this. Because we think the goal of life is to be successful. To have a nice job, to get a raise, to have a, a certain kind of income in retirement, to achieve a, a standing in the world, to attain a certain goal, or to have a certain kind of family, to live in a certain kind of home, in a, in a certain kind of neighborhood, etc., etc., and then when trials hit in our family, at work, or with some plans that, that we have, they absolutely devastate us. But if our goal is to know God and to become like Him and to be used by Him, then we can take joy in trials when they hit because we can know that no matter how difficult and fiery these trials are, they're moving us toward our goal, the goal that God has for us. You know, a James 1, 2 to 4 kind of lifestyle, the kind that is steadfast or, or persevering because of testing, requires a radically God-centered perspective on life. I mean, think for a moment of a trial in your own life. You know, whether it's big or small, it doesn't matter. Just think for a moment of a trial in your own life. If the goal is just to change or fix your circumstances, then you're absolutely setting yourself up for constant frustration. 
Because often the circumstance won't change or get fixed like you want it to, and sometimes it won't get fixed or changed at all. But even if it is fixed like you want it, something else will come up and you'll live in constant anxiety. But if your ultimate goal is not just to fix your circumstances, but rather to know God and to become like Him and to be used by Him, then you can have joy because no matter what your circumstances, you will achieve your goal. God has designed trials for our growth in godliness and for our spiritual maturity, and that is the goal that He is working toward, and that should be the goal that we are working toward. When we... When we experience trials and and we respond properly, you know, biblically, by counting it all joy because we know what God is going to accomplish through them in our lives, then we will experience growth and godliness like we could never experience any other way. But you see, loved ones, this, this message is not encouraging at all if your goal is simply to have a nice, easy carefree life, or your, your best life now, as it's called, with everything going like you planned. If that's your goal, then you will never, you will never be able to count trials as a joy. They will be nothing but an interruption in your life. But if you've set your sights above the things of this world, and you have fixed your eyes on God and and knowing Him and becoming like Him, you'll have joy in the midst of trials because you know they will teach you to know and to love and to trust Him. You know, there, there are some things that we learn by reading, other things we learn through preaching and teaching, But there are some things that we can only learn through fiery trials that test our faith. And our faith, our character, our relationships, our service, our conversations are shaped by trials and our proper biblical response to them. And so the question is, how are you responding to the trials which you may find yourself in, perhaps even this morning. Are you rebelling against them? You know, are you mad and angry at God? You know. Are you living in a state of denial? Just playing a mind game, trying to keep yourself feeling happy by denying the reality of the trial? Are you losing heart? You know, just giving up? You know, are you grumbling and complaining, blaming everyone around you for ruining your life? You know, oh, why me? Well, why not you? Why not me? Right? We're not exempt. Are you wallowing in self-pity? You know, just thinking of no one but yourself, just having a little pity party, wallowing in it, refusing to get out of it. All you want is sympathy from others. Or, 
Are you viewing your trials as a cause for joy, letting steadfastness have its full effect? Loved ones, we cannot look at our trials with the same eyes in light of this text. And so may God help us. May God help us to always look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith and trusting obedience when we encounter life's trial. So that the testing of our faith may produce steadfastness. So we'll let steadfastness have its full effect that that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May God grant this to be true in all of our lives for Jesus' sake and for his glory. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.